0: In 2004, Viktor Yushchenko was a presidential candidate in the country of Ukraine. Perceived to be a threat by the uh, ruling party, he was mysteriously poisoned. The result was that his face was badly disfigured and he almost died, but miraculously, he recovered sufficiently to be able to resume his candidacy. Um, On election day, he was doing very well. In fact, he was leading. But the government decided to tamper with the election results and they released to the state-run media that he had been soundly defeated. But the government wasn't prepared for something. They weren't prepared for a woman named Natalia Dmitryk. Natalia was a deaf translator, and she appeared in the bottom right-hand corner of the television screen on the broadcast in which the election results were being reported. Natalia knew that what was being said was a sham. It was a farce. Yushenko had won the election, but that's not what was being reported. So she made a very courageous decision. She decided not to translate into sign language what was being said. In the little bottom right-hand corner of the screen, she translated this message. I'm addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. They are lying, and I'm ashamed to translate those lies. Yushenko is our president. Well, the deaf community who saw the message that she had signed sprang into action and they started texting all of their friends. Words spread everywhere, even outside the deaf community. A few journalists heard what had happened and they decided that they would be bold. They were emboldened by what Natalia had done and they, and they confirmed that her story was true. Um, what happened next was that a revolution was started. It's called the Orange Revolution of 2004 in which over one million Ukrainians marched on the capital of Kiev demanding a new election. Well, in the end, the government was forced to capitulate. They gave in, a new election was held, and Yashenko easily was elected president. Philip Yancey sees a connection of the true story that I've just related to you, to us today. He notes that the big screen of our culture says that what matters is how beautiful you are, how much money you make, and how much power you hold. And you probably notice it's it's not the rich and famous who make the headlines, it's the poor, or it's the rich and famous who do make the headlines, not the poor and the unknown. But Yancey says this, he says, in the lower right-hand corner of the big screen of our culture is someone who tells us what we're hearing is not true. That dissenting translator is Jesus. His message is contrary to the world's. He announces the good news of an alternate kingdom Rather than agreeing with the ideals and values of our culture, he announces the good news of the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom with values, priorities, and practices that are 180 degrees opposite to our world. When compared to the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God seems like an upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of God contains a revolutionary power to change the world just as the Orange Revolution changed Ukraine. But the revolutionary power of the kingdom of God isn't directed at government powers. No, it's directed at the human heart. The kingdom of God sparks a revolution that transforms hearts. As individuals embrace this revolution of the heart, they become like a, city on a hill. A city that shines brightly, piercing the darkness and revealing a true likeness of God for the world to see. Well, where do we find out what life in God's kingdom is like? Where do we find out how to follow Jesus? Where do we find out what it means to be a city on a hill? Well, for the early church, The book of Matthew was their primary manual for learning what it means to follow Jesus. Why? Because Matthew contains more of Jesus' teachings than any other book of the Bible. Many of those teachings focus on the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew contains five sermons of Jesus that identify what kingdom life is like. Over the summer, we're going to follow the example of the early church. We're going to study Jesus' first sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Before we dive in, let's just have, let's have a quick prayer, but let's, and then ask God that he would help us to understand what he wants to say to us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together in worship, to gather together to seek you, to honor you, to worship you, and to listen to you. Lord, help us this morning to be listeners who don't just hear and walk away unchanged. Help us to be listeners this morning that eagerly embrace your truth, that hear what you're saying to us and allow you to bring the revolutionary power of your kingdom, the kingdom of God, into our lives. We look forward to, to what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus came to earth to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven, also known as the kingdom of God. And by the way, in this sermon series, I'm going to use the term kingdom of heaven because that's the term that Matthew chose to use in his book. The kingdom of heaven is where God's reign, his presence, his authority and power is experienced. Because God is the consummate, benevolent ruler, his reign is filled with goodness, justice, and wholeness for all his subjects. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides practical instruction for his disciples about how to live life on earth in light of the radical truth that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount delineates the core of what it means to be a Jesus follower. If you were Jesus' disciple, then the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount are just as much for you as they were for his disciples on the mountainside. Because Jesus commanded his disciples to teach others what he taught, it's vital that you and I not only know what he he taught, but that we teach others to heed his instruction. Well, where and when did the Sermon on the Mount occur and who was there? Well, Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples on a mountainside in Galilee early in his ministry. While neither Matthew nor any of the other gospel writers tell us the exact location, it likely it's likely it was delivered on a ridge just west of and overlooking Tabga, a village on the Sea of Galilee about three kilometers from Capernaum. The view you're seeing right now is taken from the top of the ridge where it's likely that Jesus delivered the sermon that we're looking at today. Today we're looking at the opening words of the sermon in verses 3 to 12. These verses are known as the Beatitudes. Can you say that one time? Beatitudes. Because the eight statements made here all begin with the word blessed or blessed. The Greek word makarios, which we translate into English as blessed, literally means, oh, how happy, or how fortunate. But the happiness described is not just a temporary emotional or circumstantial state because things are going well. The Greek word can also be translated, it will go well with. Well, the first thing that Jesus says is this, blessed, or Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, is Jesus talking about people who are materially poor? The answer is no and yes. Okay, so you're thinking, well, what do you mean, Kent? No, in the sense that Jesus doesn't, doesn't just say the poor. He says the poor in spirit. He's saying, Oh, how happy are those who recognize their need for God, who are not proud, who recognize that they are not self-sufficient. When we truly encounter God, we recognize that we are sinful and that God is holy. We recognize our own spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy. When Isaiah saw a vision of God, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah encountered God, he knew he was in trouble. There was no more pride in his heart. He recognized his own spiritual inadequacy, his need for God's mercy. He became poor in spirit. Same thing happened to Paul traveling on the road to Damascus. When he encountered Jesus, he recognized himself as the worst, as the chief of sinners. When Peter encountered Jesus, he said, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When we embrace the kingdom of God, our self-reliance begins to give way to humility and dependence. We begin to clearly see our desperate need for God. The psalmist said, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Those who genuinely embrace God's kingdom rule in their lives develop a dependence that delights God and allows his presence to radiate from their lives like a city on a hill. No, Jesus was not talking about the materially poor, but yes, Jesus was talking about the materially poor. You say, can't I? I? I don't get it. Since the time of Jesus, among what socioeconomic group has the good news of the kingdom of heaven spread the fastest? What do you think? Hmm? Among the poor. And why is that? Because of their material neediness, they often are more aware of their spiritual neediness. The materially poor are often less prone to feeling self-sufficient than are the rich. Jesus said, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Because the rich are often self-reliant and self-reliance belongs to a different kingdom, the kingdom of this world. Now, before you start letting your mind run and think of people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, did you know that all of us here in this room Are rich. The poorest of the poor in North America are richer than over two thirds of the world. In fact, in 2013, Forbes magazine reported that the poorest 5% of Americans were as rich as the top 5% of people in India. Perhaps one of the reasons relatively few Canadians and Americans embrace the kingdom of God is because of our wealth and accompanying self-sufficiency. Jesus said, it will go well with the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The natural outcome of seeing my profound need for God is to mourn my condition. But the paradox of the kingdom is that this mourning that occurs when I see my need for God also opens the door to Him. Those who mourn over their own sinful state are comforted by God. In this beatitude, we hear echoes of Isaiah 61. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted and to comfort all those who mourn, as we read in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. When we are brokenhearted over our own sinfulness, We put out a welcome mat for the Spirit of God to comfort us. Now, mourning doesn't mean that as Christ followers, we don't also experience joy. It doesn't mean we walk around all the time with long, sad, somber faces. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. Those who submit to God's kingdom rule mourn the things that God mourns, personal sin, social evil, oppression, and persecution. But as we mourn, we experience God's comfort and we become instruments of the good news of the kingdom of heaven. We share with others the same comfort with which God has comforted us. A time is also coming in the future when all mourning will cease. After Jesus returns, God will recreate the heavens and the earth and he will wipe away, we read in Revelation, every tear from our eyes. Mourning will be over. It will ultimately go well with those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The third beatitude is Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. With this third statement, Jesus switches the focus from interpersonal qualities to interpersonal attributes. Meekness does not mean weakness. Say that with me. Meekness does not mean weakness. Well, how do we know? Well, look at Jesus. He's our best example of meekness. He was not weak. He confronted both the Jewish religious leaders for their hypocrisy and his own disciples for their self-centeredness. But Jesus advanced his kingdom, not with violence, domination, or by seeking vengeance. He came with gentleness. Meekness is the opposite of the domineering, aggressive, harsh, and tyrannical spirit, which is the norm in our world. God's kingdom isn't established by political maneuvering, by electing a particular political party into power, or by enacting laws that require compliance with godly principles. The kingdom of heaven is established through meekness. Well, what do those who embody meekness or gentleness, receive as a reward. They will inherit the earth. In Jesus' response, we hear a clear allusion to Psalm 3711, where we read, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity According to 2 Timothy 2.12, kingdom citizens will one day rule and reign together with Christ. Christ's followers will one day inherit the new earth as theirs to enjoy its beauty and its bounty forever. It will ultimately go well with the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Oh, how happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who embrace the kingdom rule of God desperately crave righteousness. They want to see justice for the poor, exploited and marginalized. They long for relationships to be renewed and restored. They long for ethical living and for the forsaking of sin in their own lives and in the world around them. They long for the fulfillment of God's promised salvation upon the earth. Well, what will be their reward? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled satisfied. That satisfaction will ultimately be complete when Jesus returns to earth and dispenses justice when he writes all wrongs. But it's also experienced now in the hearts of those who, like the Samaritan woman at the well, choose to respond in faith to Jesus. He fills our thirst for purpose, meaning, and life. Through a relationship with Him in which our deepest personal longings are met. Oh, how happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It will also go well with those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. Those who enter the kingdom do so through God's mercy. This transforms the heart. We extend mercy to others. We become generous, forgiving. We extend compassion and provide all kinds of healing. Mercy is one of God's most fundamental attributes. In Exodus 34, 6, we read that God revealed himself to Moses as... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Mercy is also a foundational attribute of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will refer to showing mercy numerous times during the course of this sermon series that we'll engage in this summer. The world says, you made your own bed, you can lie in it. God says, You made your own bed. I'll come to rescue you from it. When you and I are merciful toward others, Jesus shines brightly through us like a city on a hill. Those who receive mercy from us are drawn toward a God who loves them and chooses to give them not what they deserve, but what they don't deserve. Oh, how happy. Are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus also says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity can speak of inner cleansing from sin, but also of single hearted loyalty and devotion to God. Those who embrace kingdom rule experience a heart transformation that includes cleansing from sin. This heart transformation creates a growing single-mindedness, a purity of devotion to God. Jesus tells us that the most important purity of all is not our outer purity, as the Pharisees claimed and were so caught up about, but purity of heart. True purity works from the inside out, not the other way around. It's the heart that produces external purity. It's not about keeping laws and rules. It's about allowing God's kingdom rule to invade my heart. When my heart changes, my behavior changes. Well, what do those who become single-minded in their relationship with God receive? Jesus says they will see God. Well, what does that mean? God told Moses that no one could see him and live. Was Jesus contradicting his heavenly father? <laughs> Absolutely not. Seeing God refers here to two things. First, it refers in a futuristic sense to the day described in Revelation 22.4, when at the end of this current age, we see God face to face in the new heaven and new earth but it doesn't just apply to the future. It reminds us that because Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, those who embrace his kingdom rule enter into an intimate friendship with him in which we can see God in Jesus right now. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The next beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The theme of peace of shalom permeates the Bible. It speaks not only of lack of aggression, but of wholeness and completeness in every arena of life, including our relationship with God, with our neighbors, and with nations. The world says to get ahead and win, you've got to be aggressive and compete. It was no different in Jesus' day. Zealots sought to overthrow tyranny and bring peace through guerrilla warfare. The religious establishment sought peace by promoting conformity to the Old Testament law, but ironically, they kept dividing based on their understanding of Scripture. They said, if you don't believe and practice faith like me, you're wrong and I'm out of here. When someone experiences kingdom life, they meet the Prince of Peace. They realize that he alone can bring peace between God and humanity and between human and human. Because of their new inner peace with God, Christ's followers are empowered to seek and pursue peace with others. On our feet, we wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. We herald the good news that God reigns. Those who respond to the invitation of kingdom life receive the ultimate reward to become sons or daughters of God. We become heirs, God's heirs, and joint heirs of the kingdom with Jesus. It will go well with the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus then says, "'Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" This beatitude is intended to bring comfort to those who have suffered undeserved persecution. Sometimes we suffer hardship because of our own sin or foolishness, even our own stupidity. Jesus is not referring to those situations here. He's referring to those persecuted because they've stood up rightly for what is right. Have you ever stood up for what's right and suffered for it? Perhaps uh, you were denied a promotion because you refused to participate in a shady business deal. Perhaps you were ostracized at work because you reported a theft committed by a co-worker. Perhaps you were ridiculed and humiliated by your peers at school because you stood up for another student, an unpopular student, was being bullied, Jesus says, you are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. He goes on to say, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Most Bible scholars see verses 11 and 12 that I just read as an amplification of the eighth beatitude in verse 10 rather than as a new ninth beatitude. A different verb tense is evident in the Greek indicating Jesus is no longer addressing all of the crowd present, but only his disciples. In verse 10, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Here in verse 11, he said, blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice the intimate connection there between the disciples and himself. Since Jesus will be persecuted, he's telling them, you're going to be persecuted as well. In fact, he told his followers that they would be hated by all men and arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Though the kingdom belongs to Jesus' followers, we don't yet live in a time of peace and safety. Jesus reminds us that the reward for enduring Christian persecution doesn't come in this life. It will come in heaven. Jesus sees the kingdom in its final form and gives us hope that when it looks like his kingdom hasn't arrived and never will, it's already here and one day it will be consummated. Let's ask some important questions before we wrap up. This is really important. I I want you to hang with me here. This is really important to understand what Jesus is saying and what it means for us. First question is this. Are the Beatitudes entrance requirements for kingdom life? Well, the answer to that question is no. Else Jesus would be sanctioning torture or martyrdom as ways to eternal life. The only way that you and I can enter the kingdom of God is to recognize that we are a sinner separated from God. We must choose to believe that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and rose up from the dead to give us life. We have to choose to make Him Lord. Second question. Are the Beatitudes ethical demands for personal behavior, are they a type of ideal Christians, Christ followers, are supposed to aspire to? The answer may surprise you. Again, it's a no, they are not. If they were, Jesus would be implying that we should seek out persecution to receive a blessing. The truth is that you and I, by our own efforts, could never consistently live up to the realities described here. And you're probably thinking, well, Kent, then what are the Beatitudes? Now, I want you to get this. This is important. The Beatitudes are a description of the kind of qualities produced in disciples who are embracing kingdom rule in their lives. Let me say that again. The Beatitudes are a description of the kind of qualities produced in disciples who are embracing kingdom rule in their lives they are the qualities of kingdom life that are increasingly found in hearts being transformed by the upside down kingdom of heaven they are the qualities of life that emanate from a city on a hill are you believing the message on the big screen of our culture? In fact, are you believing the messages on the big screen of our culture? Or are you believing the message in the bottom right-hand corner supplied by Jesus? Have you become a kingdom citizen? Have you submitted control of your life to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ? If not, Jesus says to you, the kingdom of heaven is here. Turn from the direction you're headed and believe the good news. For those who have chosen kingdom citizenship, are you and I continuing to walk in submission to the king? Are the qualities of the kingdom described in the Beatitudes Increasing in your life. Is your life shining brightly like a city on a hill? If not, it can, as you and I resubmit ourselves to the desires and the will of the King. Will you do that today?